to Inside Sponsorship, the show that provides sponsorship professionals with advice, insights and news so they can maximise their commercial programmes and achieve best practice. I've really loved hosting this podcast in 2019, mostly because I got to spend some time chatting with our amazing guests from all over the world. And I can tell you that nine out of the 10 guests I interview, they ask at the end, was that okay? And obviously I say it was great. It was amazing because once again, we've heard from someone in the industry who really has shared something good with us. We started this podcast to try and fill the gap between your role and the same stuff you so often hear at conferences where you just get meta information but don't really get to hear how the person implements it. You know, the real nitty gritty stuff, the frontline information, the secret source. And I suppose that's probably fair enough because often at conferences, those people are presenting to a room full of peers who might just be hunting the same sponsors as them. So they do have to be a little bit guarded. I'm someone who doesn't mind speaking their mind. So there are occasions where I'll share with the guest and I'll say to them that maybe I wasn't sure about the topic and how I'd make it work and whether I could actually make it into a good show for you, the listener. And I'm guessing some of you would be making the same sorts of assumptions based on the titles of the shows and thinking, hmm, I'm not sure this is going to be all that interesting for me. However, if you're like me, and this is what I say to the guests, they are often the shows that really open my eyes and get me thinking differently about sponsorship. And in 2019, the show was chock full of great interviews just like that. So we thought we'd wrap up 2019 and visit the other 13 episodes of Inside Sponsorship. You might have seen on social media throughout the year that for each show, we pull out about a 30 to 45 second snippet and turn it into a video to help whet your appetite and help promote the show. As such, we've gone back and pulled the full question and full answer for that snippet and pulled them together into a best of 2019 show for you. I'm Daniel Oyston and welcome to episode 78 of Inside Sponsorship. For the final time in 2019, I must say, again, it's great to have you listening to the show. You, the listener, really are what this show is all about and we love all the topic suggestions, questions and just the messages that we get to let us know you're listening and it is truly humbling for all of us to hear that the show really does help you do your job, maybe just that little bit bit better. Along with some great highlights from the 13 episodes of 2019, we thought it only fair to let Core's Head of International Business, Mark Thompson, have his last say for the year, and he joins us to discuss his latest blog, which looks at expanding competition geographies and how sponsorship needs to be approached. Here's Mark. Mark Thompson, welcome to the show. Hi, Daniel. How are you doing, mate? I'm outstanding because I get to watch a lot of sport. You and I, we would account for about 20% of sport viewership in Australia. I, I, I watch. I just put, I put old games on. I watch it in the background. I watch new games. I watch sports teams I don't even care about. I've got it on pretty much the whole time unless my family makes me watch The Voice. But, man... Do we have a lot of ways than ever before to consume those sports that we love and even entertainment content? Because maybe only sort of like three, four, five years ago, it was it was kind of straightforward. I just turned the TV on, I had free to air, or I had my Fox plugged in, and and it just worked. They were the only, pretty much the only broadcasting partners for sport, and 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 plus the music and the entertainment. But nowadays they're endless other channels via social media and dedicated streaming services and OTT and secondary TV channels. And I've still got the normal TV channels and my normal Fox. And and depending on who I want to watch, I have to put it on normal TV or Fox or I have to sign up just to watch one game if it's a game of English soccer that I want to watch or football for the purists. I kind of feel like it's, it's a lot of hard work sometimes. Is that a danger not just for the rights holders but more importantly because we're here to talk about sponsorship is that a danger for the partnerships look on on the surface and without much thought most people would conclude that you know the evolution is too much dilution and and dangerous to the success of broadcast partnerships which you know sort of revolve around advertising spend and subscriptions and I've had many conversations with people who say that the the peak of deals has, has been reached and I think I've said that myself on this podcast, perhaps, but you know, I was a, much less educated back then. <laughs> I'd like to say I learn every something every day, and if I don't, I go back to bed. <laughs> um, so I sleep a lot. So you know, sports in particular have a need to start planning for a sharp decline, and you know, revenue and deal sizes face significant turmoil and commercially at the same sort of 
you know, time of renegotiation. And I hear these sort of doomsday stories all the time. And, and sometimes they're true. Like we're, we're talking, you know, Fox Sports in Australia, talking about reducing, you know, some of their paid for content. And there's only one sport that's coming off contract. So it's going to look good, not, not too good for rugby, um, potentially. But it, in all, is this a danger for partnerships? I totally disagree that, that it is. Why? So if you, if you dive into the variety of options now, you note that the main and the actual broadcast is the same. So the commentary, the feed, it all comes via the main broadcast partner. The streaming people rarely have their own commentators and, you know, feed. You'll still see the logos and, and whatever, right? So, you know, the, the exceptions are the some commission broadcast, but, you know, they have would have gone unbroadcasted before anyway. So it's not you're not taking away an audience. So, you know, the main broadcast feed, regardless of the channel, is still being captured shared consumed and in some cases by newer audiences who may not have engaged with the mainstream broadcast before because they may not have had you know pay tv or free-to-air tv or anything well they're only just interested in that one sport they don't want to buy the whole you know pay tv package yeah and so the larger reach and variety of options that are now out there lend themselves to partnership opportunities being sort of being between providers allowing these providers to perhaps diversify their risk of paying high broadcast fees without taking away from the rights holders needs so you know you can see more partnerships in broadcast which we see a little bit of you know dual broadcast partners and stuff that's all about risk diversification and and this just brings whole new channels and streams of risk diversity while still engaging new audiences you can watch two minute clips you can people can watch it over the internet now you know legally um, and so <laughs> legally yeah and so you know i i think when you div, dive deeper and you actually think about it with a commercial lens on it's it doesn't lend itself to being risky so there's opportunities you speak about looking at it through or, or with that commercial lens on what does it mean for sponsorship well i think the answer there's probably two answers to that right it, it depends on what the brand is sponsoring so for rights holders it's potentially great news so So they can sponsor either the rights holder to start with they could sponsor the rights holder to start with or they could sponsor the broadcast itself okay so that's the 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 different um, sponsorship options right so you know potentially great news for for rights holders branding based assets within partnerships will still get their same exposure there's a variety of options at disposal of viewers means greater flexibility about when and how they consume so you're not having to watch live to see stuff you can watch it later you can watch snippets whatever so there's and the different channels may lend itself to different partnership opportunities that the rights holders control especially if they're commissioned content like we spoke about before broadcaster sponsorships if you're sponsoring a broadcast in terms of on-screen partnerships during the main feature of the broadcast this too shouldn't be affected because if remember they're, they're channeling the feed right so however what it does represent a challenge or a risk is to advertising attractiveness given the streaming or, or other options may not broadcast commercial content so you know tv ads and so the loss of that revenue should it head that way would put pressure on the fees able to being paid by broadcast rights particularly with the free-to-air ones because the, the the advertising revenue on pay subscription tv is is still important but the subscription base is what holds it together the free-to-air tv 100 percent reliant on sponsorship and advertising so that's the area that it could be affected but again there, there are ways of sort of cutting that pie up anyway so there's obviously opportunities, but we talk about risks and things that we need to manage. Does this represent any upside? Um, yeah, and it, and it benefits both parties. The biggest upside is a, a fresh and more dialed-in data, um, which can now be captured through social and streaming options. You have to sign up. You have to give your details to be able to consume the contents. And particularly if you're using something like Facebook to sign in with. Yeah, so you know, unlike previous years where audience were just a number and perhaps a location, you know, that, that, that a Nielsen panel or something was giving us, then um, the subscription or member-based services can give us who, what, when, and where and dive deep into their exact location, their age, their gender, their consumption rate, so how long they actually watch the content for at what time, what their income details are potentially if they're coming through Facebook sort of login and things like that and, and what their interests outside of that sport are what other interests they've got so the stories we can then tell off the back of that information coming out is super exciting and who owns that data is really dependent on the broadcast partnership so it is another way of potential broadcasters who may be losing advertising revenue to just 
still maintain a, a high level of value in their partnerships. The interesting thing that came to mind as you were talking there about the details and the, and the demographics that you can pull out of it is that we often talk about the, the, the advent of technology and how it's permeating everything that we do now in business and, and obviously sponsorship as well, is that those people streaming sports are going to be pretty digitally savvy and they're the people that we're trying to access a lot more these days instead of just those people watching free-to-wear and going to the games. Man, totally. And the people that are hearing you say that are listening to this through a device on a podcast. Congratulations. Right? Like it's, <laughs> they're being able to navigate, you know, a podcast uh, app or something to download it and then listen it listen to it through their, you know, Air, AirPods or something like that, which are wireless and, you know, it's uh while it's, they're in their Uber that they ordered on their phone in yeah. between Netflix shows. Yeah, yeah, exactly right. So we always like to round out these chats with, okay, this is where we've come from. This is the opportunities and the risks that we've got in front of us right now. We like to round it off with what's next. What's next for this space? So we're already starting to see some sports. The NBA is one that I call out. And you know, the last two minutes of the game is an option that people can buy from the NBA. Crazy. Yeah. Um, you know, if you're not a basketball fan, but, you know, you need to uphold a conversation in the office, that's a fantastic way of doing it. <laughs> so, you know, where certain elements of the broadcast are being chunked out for certain interest points to help attract more specific audience. So so it's clear, to, it's important to say that that strategy from the NBA isn't about making people watch less basketball. That's about attracting a new audience to try and transition them into a more engaged and more loyal. Taste, it's a taste test. Correct. But but that also represents broadcast options for second-tier sports is, is what we're talking about as well. So given the variety and volume, that's that's going to be key to the success of the emerging broadcasters. So, you know, KO Sport, you know, they advertise that they have over 500 sporting options to choose from. I couldn't even name 150 sport. Oh, you should get on there, man. That's so cool. You can watch. I'll never sleep. You can watch Pro Kerdabi in India. I'll it's, watch that. It's amazing. Um, so you can you can watch all sorts of stuff, which is really cool. And and it you know would not have been as readily attractive to broadcasters before, but they need content now because they're an app and it's it's always on. There's no scheduling. You can watch stuff whenever you want to watch stuff. So it's it's really important to have a, a wide variety of, of broadcasters. And, you know, one that we're close to, which was sort of our, one of our early day clients, Touch Football Australia or Touch Football NRL now, you know, they're, they're streamed, they're, they're broadcast live on, on cable TV in Australia. They're also streamed on KO and then they're also streamed on NRL.com. Well, and they're also streamed on uh, Facebook around the big tournaments. And when you and I have friends, I don't know if you do this, but when you and I have friends at World Cups or national competitions and there's an important game on, I quite often turn it on and watch it at my desk while I'm supposed to be working. 100%. And and that sport would not have been attractive to a broadcast partnership before. But now the, the need for new content, the exciting nature of what they do, the short ability to watch it relatively quickly, it's attractive. That, that then opens them up to be a, a legitimate player in the sponsorship game. And so what we'll be interested in is how mainstream broadcasters then try and diversify their risk that, you know, I mentioned earlier and how rights owners try and leverage the diverse scale of at their disposal to grow and not decrease that broadcast revenue. So what I don't think there's going to be a decrease in broadcast values. But, but what I would love to be is a fly on the wall in the discussions around how they justify the decrease versus increase. Again, some of this stuff makes my head spin and it certainly is exciting and, and it's changing and anybody who thinks that they can predict it with any real certainty might have a little bit of egg on their face. But like you said, it'd be great to be a fly on the wall for some of those conversations. And, and the future is exciting because we want to get more content in front of more people, but we want to do it the right way. So listeners, if you want to read through Mark's thoughts in detail, just head to coresoftware.com where you can read through it in your own time. Thanks for joining us, Mark. Thanks, mate. Cheers. I've really loved hosting this podcast in 2019 because I got to spend some time chatting with our awesome guests. And on behalf of all the listeners, thank you so much to all our guests who made some time to take us inside their part of the world of sponsorship. It really has been appreciated. As I said earlier, we thought we'd wrap up 2019 and visit the other 13 episodes of Inside Sponsorship. 
You might have seen on social media throughout the year that for each show, we pull out about a 30 to 45 second snippet and turn it into a video to help promote the show and to whet your appetite a little. As such, we've gone back and pulled the full question and the entire answer for each of those snippets from each show and created a best of 2019 episode for you. Kicking off with January in episode 65, Kolya Korachuk, brand director, took us inside sponsorship at Bahrain Merida Pro Cycling Team. You spoke about the passion McLaren have shown in these early stages about the partnership and cycling itself is known for very passionate fans who are known to follow a race around day after day, multiple locations. They'll set up on the side of the road for long periods of time and only get to see the cyclists for a little bit. How do you work with sponsors to engage those passionate cycling fans? I'm glad you asked that question because in cycling Similar like Formula One, we, we have, I would say, let's say, two challenges, two disadvantages compared to other team sports. First one is that we don't have a home. We don't have a stadium, arena, gym, whatever that we can call home. And we don't have that place where we can have all our fans at one time and offer our sponsor, sponsors access to our fans in that particular time at this, at this particular space. The second disadvantage is that Although we are team sports, fans tend to follow cyclists, or in Formula One case, riders or drivers, not not teams. So, just example, if you look at social media numbers, our best rider, Vicenzo Nibali, has over a million followers on three major platforms, Instagram, Facebook, and uh, Twitter. While at the same time, we as a team have 170,000. Yeah, we are a fairly new, new team, only two years old, but similar cases between riders and some older teams. So those are two big disadvantages. So now when when we exhibit the problem, what's the solution? We have to understand that we're not only a sport, but also entertainment. So we're not only competing with other sports, we're competing with any entertainment. We need to make our fans interested in our sports. Sport. We have to admit that cycling races can be boring sometimes, especially if it's flat stage, that is going to culminate with like, you know, the last two minutes of a sprint and, and the whole stage goes for five hours. But I guess that's a problem with, with something that UCI needs to tackle. We do try to work with each sponsor individually and see what their goals are. We tend to use social media because we don't have this stadium, as I said, and uh, that is that is where our fans hang out usually, at social media. We can talk to them during the races and all around the races. Then we give space to our sponsors to be uh, noticed to our fans without disturbing fans thinking it's advertising. So, for example, we started a game at uh, a social media called Lucky 13, which on every 13th of the month, one of our sponsors gives five presents. Uh, so let's say Rudy Project gives five sunglasses or any other sponsors give whatever they, are, they, they have as a product. And then... We organized a game for fans to get uh, involved, and we had a lot of interaction, like more interaction in those games than any other uh, post that we have. And uh, uh, the sponsors are happy because a lot of people are uh, around these social media channels and, and watching the game and, and interacting with the game. So that's that's one one way. I think in in this area we have a lot to develop. I really think we are not as good as uh, some other sports that have their arena, but we have similar issue with Formula One. So I think we can uh, maybe we can get some help from McLaren on the, with that issue. Also, last year we attempted to start a fan club. We made a major mistake that we started fan club in April, which was way too late for a fan club that results around cycling season. And in that fan club, we engaged some new partners in Bahrain, particularly, that would give discounts to, uh, for the fan members. With this fan club in Bahrain, we also picked another box, gained more local fans. But as I said, it wasn't successful. And now we learn, we understood the issues, we learned from those issues, and we hope we'll work with McLaren and use their experience as they have their own fan club and make our fan club much better. So there, there are a few things that we're working on, how to, you know, engage sponsors and fans uh, together. But as I said, you know, there's two major issues that we need to over overcome first. 
In episode 66, Adam Hodge, Head of Planning and Strategy, APAC, at Octagon, joined us to discuss sponsorship in Asia. Western brands or non-Asian brands, they want to engage in sponsorship in Asia because it's clearly a huge market. What are some of the misconceptions they have or the missteps they make when they first go into that market? It really tends to be not an issue. And the reason why is that a lot of these Western brands that are looking at a market like Asia tend to be those quite sophisticated brands that have been on the global stage for a long time. I think actually what's probably more interesting is to almost look at the question in reverse, to look at when Asian brands are maybe looking into Western markets, what are the things that that some of the errors that, that they can sometimes make simply because they haven't had that exposure in the past. And I guess a couple of them is, we touched on this earlier, looking at sponsorship as a media channel. Whilst on the surface it is, it is a way to get your brand exposed to a particular type of people at a particular time. It's, it's, a, it's not a terribly efficient media channel if you look at it simplistically like that because of that premium that it covers for, I guess, paying for the passion that comes along with a platform like, like sports or entertainment. Another trap that, that we've seen clients that are coming into the space somewhat fresh is thinking that the right fee that you pay is all that you need to budget for. We've seen this happen in the past where a partner will come in and let's just pick a number out of the air. They'll do a $10 million sponsorship deal. So as they're planning their next year or two ahead, they're budgeting $10 million a year for their sponsorship. And what they're not doing is remembering that for every dollar that you spend on the rights, you should, in a perfect world, you should be spending another dollar on leveraging those rights. And sometimes they think that buying the sponsorship is the job done, just like it would be you buy a TV ad, it costs you 10 million, you run it and that's done. With sponsorship, you need to have a significant leverage budget behind you to make sure that you're taking advantage of those rights, that the rights themselves are not that powerful until you activate them. And probably the final thing is, Sometimes there's an expectation from less mature brands who are coming into sponsorship in, in, in either direction, whether they're Asian going Western or Western coming Asian, is that sometimes there's an over-expectation of how much work the rights holder is going to do for you and that their job is to put on a great event. Their job is to, to, to celebrate the greatest tennis players in the world or to have the, the largest football match or to, to play 15 massive concerts in stadiums. Their job is not to promote your milk company. They're certainly providing you with a platform in return for your investment, and they will certainly, the best ones at least, will certainly do all that they can to make sure that you're getting the best value out of that investment because that's how they get you to renew. But it certainly isn't their job, nor do they have the skill set to sell your product for you. So it's important to understand, keep enough money to be able to pay for leverage. Make sure that you understand that you are going to be responsible for your own leverage. The rights holder isn't going to do it for you. And don't look at sponsorship just as another media channel because you'll, you'll overspend and then you'll be disappointed by the return. One, one thing that I would add though, Daniel, is that if, if you are a, a non-Asian brand, whether that means you're a Western brand or a brand from another part of the world, and you are thinking of coming in, into Asia, it's not something you've done before, something I think that is worth considering as well also is not underestimating the power of celebrity in Asia. In other parts of the world, from my own experience over the last 15 or so years, is that sponsorship, particularly in the world of sport, but it also does apply to, to music and, and film and, and entertainment and social responsibility, is that the, the priority has tended to be we look at sponsoring teams or clubs or leagues or, or events, and then we look at the individuals involved in them, whether they are the artists or the athletes, as kind of secondary. And in Asia, there really is, the, the power of celebrity is, is, is unbelievable. And to a certain extent, it's bigger than the game. So um, Western brands who come into Asia sometimes miss that opportunity where having a, an ambassador partnership can sometimes be as powerful or more powerful than sponsoring a team because the fans are fans of the individual player and they'll actually tend to move with the player if the player switches teams or, or does things differently. Whereas in the more established markets like the US and the UK, you're born into a team, you're born into a club, and regardless of where the players go, your, your passion and commitment stays with that club. That's not necessarily the case in Asia. In episode 67, Sven Glor, Senior Manager Global Rugby Strategy and Planning at HSBC, joined us to take stock of the sponsorship industry and share his views and insights on where it's all heading and what you need to do to prepare and position yourself for success. 
So you and I caught up quickly on FaceTime last week to talk about what we might cover on this episode. And straight off the bat, you said, don't worry, I've got this covered. I know what I'm going to talk about. And when you went on to outline what you wanted to cover off, that was A, what sponsorship has been about in the past, then B, take stock of kind of where we are now and see where you think it is all heading because you're quite excited about this. And I must say I was struck by your enthusiasm and excitement for the future of sponsorship, but also that there was a real sense of, look, we got to kind of figure this out quickly if we want to do well and take advantage of the opportunity. So let's start with a bit of a recap. What are your views on where sponsorship has come from? And it would be great if you could identify in that what you thought was great about the past and and maybe that we shouldn't throw out in terms of things that we just change because it used to be old. Yeah, look, I guess you could say I'm a true sponsorship uh, proponent. So I, I, yeah, I'm absolutely enthusiastic about where we're at today. But in saying that, that's only you know, with the benefit of, I guess, you know, hindsight of, of seeing where we've come from and and, you know, what I'm more excited about is where I think we're about to go. And that's, that's sort of the thing that, uh, yeah, excites me the most. But, you know, I've always believed in the power of sponsorship, you know, even more so now today, because we're, we're about to move into this, this chapter where we're going to see far better engineered and, and, I guess, more meaningful brand partnerships going forward as opposed to sponsorship. And happy to still call it sponsorship, but I, I do strongly feel that as an industry, we should move towards this idea of this, you know, partnerships with brands or integrated brand partnerships, whatever you want to call it, but I think move away from just pure sponsorship because I think that is real one one dimensional. But yeah, I, I generally feel as an industry we're on the cusp of, of massive upheaval and change. And if I guess that one sound too deep or textbook like in the matter, but you know, sport is one example of a medium within sponsorship is is one of the world's greatest connectors and it, you know, it, it absolutely breeds and it fosters the things we talked about earlier, tribalism and fan passion is Rivalry, you, know, you can follow individual sporting talents, you know, the journeys, the highs, the lows, event successes, and so on. And it also, again, without pointing to it, it can bring people together in times where you know, things in the wider world may not always be so rosy. So, you know, I won't talk about it again, but with the likes of Brexit and Trump and so on. So, you know, to me, it's the ultimate level, and it's driven by one almost like this idea of this unifying connector, which is it's, it's charged by the power of human emotion, and it always has and always will. So, I guess where I'm going with that is, um, you know, brands of forever sponsored likes of entertainment platforms, whether it's spa, uh, sport, arts, talks, and so on. But, you know, if it's done well and it's authentic and credible, then, you know, I genuinely believe that it's one of, one of the strongest platforms. And that's irrespective of whether that's, you know, business or brand-led, in connecting with audiences. And, and that can be a little bit more importantly for today, I think it's about connecting with new audiences. So, you know, I... I this is obviously this isn't controversial and upsets the advertising or broader marketing <laughs> world, but I, I genuinely believe it can run further and deeper than traditional marketing does for a brand. And, and yeah, look, that's extremely biased and it's self-serving, but it's what I genuinely believe. And you know, to your question to where we've come from, you know, through to today, the, the reason my enthusiasm is we as an industry, I, I feel we've punched above our weight for, for so many years now, and you know, we've we've also done it by being what I think is generally hamstrung by you know, a lack of or, or, or more so probably simply archaic systems and processes around, you know, it's the obvious one, the value measurement, tangible, you know, lack of a better term, ROI, that analogy, ROI, this, ROI, that. You know, we've constantly been trying to crack that now, and I don't think we have. And I, I sort of feel like we've, we've, we've succeeded, you know, far and above and beyond we ever thought as an industry, but without the, the ability to truly really justify ourselves and our existence. And, and that's probably in the eyes of a lot of marketing business heads. And so... You know, I'm sure you agree, but I hear this almost every day. I meet someone, they ask, what do I do in terms of my role and career? And so I tell them. And without fail, the first and foremost question I get every time is, well, you know, how do you justify the value of, of the sponsorship? So how do you measure whether it's working or not? And you hear that time and time again. And, you know, to this point, I, I sort of feel like despite that, the sponsorship has generally flourished and has been the absolute investment of the cornerstone over a number of entertainment platforms since the dawn of time, but based largely on, on subjectivity and also probably near enough measures. We're probably guilty of using, you know, clunky systems and models that I generally feel have been largely self-serving and self-fulfilling in many cases. And yet despite of that, we've managed to still largely occupy, you know, the hearts and minds of a lot of businesses and, and marketing heads for generations despite of the above. So for me, yeah, 
sponsorship went down well, there's potential to stick like no other marketing medium can. And look, again, that may upset a lot of people, but that, that's what I genuinely believe. And well, I'm not splitting the, the sponsorship atom here by any means, but the facts are businesses need to grow consistently and they need to, to grow new customers. You know, I talked about this area that rather than going back to existing audiences. So to me, I mean, what better way to do is to connect with them through the passion points and sport is, is an example of that. But we've managed to somehow do that in spite of ourselves. And today we've, we've done that without due diligence or diligence to our industry. And I still feel like we've somewhat inspired ourselves. And the sport industry alone is worth over $700 billion a year. And, you know, sponsorship plays in a, an extremely large part of that. And that's despite the, you know, the fractious and often clunky approach that the industry has taken in, in getting to this point. So, you know, it's somewhere too, too long that we've probably, you know, keep going back to this, but we've succeeded probably despite ourselves. And that's because I feel the proposition, the basic premise of sponsorship is so strong in, in its basic foundations. And, you know, and, and to be fair, until today's love it works, but it's been this relatively true circle where both, you know, the, the property and the brand have felt that they've benefited. And that's been through a simple transaction-led approach for me, which is, I kind of think in some it's this, this idea of just cash for a, a predetermined set of rights, and that's probably not where we, we need to be going forward. And, you know, if you look at it, there's also, you know, this isn't new news either, but I think today we've been guilty of sort of the classic, you know, nearly pioneer and frontier days sponsor, which been led by the classic chairman's choice or the captain's call for you, what do you call it? And ultimately the good old finger in the air led subjectivity and, and we haven't really had a sponsorship science production. I think that's because that hasn't existed until now. And, you know, again, I don't want to sound cheesy and happy to put this out there, but I, I believe there's this, there's this idea of this sponsorship sort of, I won't say revolution, but evolution is coming over the next decade. And, you know, I think we're going to be under so much, you know, rapid and, and almost sort of just aggressive change off the back of technology. And I, I kind of feel like we've been operating at 60% of optimal capacity. The industry, and I think that that is really going to change, and we're going to we're going to see that evolve rapidly. And you know, this one-dimensional approach that we've always had, where cash was king, service delivery was pretty much an obligation, and you've had sports talent was considered very much just a commodity. You know, and then the brand or the rights holder were really talking outside of their annual and yearly review to compare notes. In the days gone by, probably the ultimate outcome was the rights holder was saying, "Well, you know, is the sponsor going to retire?" And if so, how much can, can we get them for? And then, you know, the next question is, will they invest more? And that's usually calculated on a CPI basis model plus some. And then across the table, you had sitting the sponsor was thinking, well, you know, what can you give me to justify the, you know, the exercise and help me sell the sponsor back into the business to justify that that further investment? And, you know, that's, that's, that's not a, a virtual circle at all. That's quite a vicious one because at some time, that's set to fail. And the reason it's set to fail for mine is that, Unless it's a tangible proof that the sponsorship is truly meeting the business of brand objectives, then you know, we, we haven't had tools to to debate that can demonstrate that. I'm not robust ones anyway. So look, I think that's probably the area of concern for me, but also the area of opportunity. And, and that's where I think we've, we've come to today. But this juncture in the road, but I think things are going to things are going to change and change dramatically, but very much for the better. Our guest in episode 68, Ian Davidson, Head of Events and Sponsorship at InOcean Worldwide, took us inside best practice sponsorship measurement. We know that rights holders are there to help activate sponsorships that support a brand's wider marketing and business objectives. So sponsorship is just one strategy within a wider marketing plan. A rights holder can get tight on what they need to deliver and they can measure it well and they can report on it well and they can have a a really good, strong, open, collaborative relationship with a brand. But do you think that they should stop there at the border of sponsorship or do you think that they should be actively talking with their sponsors and, and those brands more deeply, so not maybe so superficially? I'm not sure that's actually the right word, but speaking to them about how their wider marketing is performing and what they're tracking and measuring because for me the danger is that the rights holder can operate in a silo and they can become isolated they're not involved in wider marketing conversations and that can possibly jeopardize a sponsorship somewhere down the line yeah it can you're right and i think it's important that you do have a close relationship there 
I mean, a really good rights holder will have their eye on a brand's broad objectives before we even get to uh, negotiation. A really good rights holder will be able to offer up those assets. We spoke about cherry-picking assets. We'll be able to, to have a read on what might work for a brand before they even get to the conversation around talking about the deal. So that shows proactivity, and I think that's an opportunity for rights holders to is to really think about, okay, what, what, what can I offer this particular brand, not just what's the off-the-shelf off product, and again, I think as I touched on the big codes do that really, really well. They, they recognize that as a sales opportunity, that if you have your your eye on your, uh, your client's business, then you're in a better position to make a recommendation on which assets will suit them better. So I think it's important for them to be collaborative and not to work in silos. That being said, I don't think it's necessarily the rights holders place to be thinking about the broader marketing activity in a, in a practical sense. It's just more, how can I add value? What, and, and being aware, I suppose, and then being prepared to be flexible and, and be reactive is also important. And fantastic chat. Some awesome insights and advice there for the listeners. If people want to get in contact with you and learn more about InOcean Worldwide and the work that you do, what can they do? They can send me an email. My email address is ian.davidson at inocean.com.au. Outstanding. Ian Davidson, Head of Events and Sponsorship at InOcean Worldwide. Thank you so much for taking us inside Sponsorship Measurement. It's been a pleasure. Thanks for having me on. In Episode 69, Patrick Maloney, Network Director of Sports Sales at Seven West Media, discussed how Seven West Media has moved into digital offerings and some of the advantages in integrating their offerings across many platforms. Well, as you mentioned, there are limitations. You need to be careful with crossover into editorial and things like that. I'm wondering whether you might be biased with this answer, but I'm going to ask the question anyway. But do you think broadcast as a sponsorship asset is as effective as more traditional assets like signage or naming rights, obviously depending on the objectives a sponsor is looking to achieve? It's a loaded question there, Daniel. <laughs> a very loaded question. Um, I've got to be... Do you know what? You can only answer this one way, and that's straight on. Look, I've worked across a signage background when I was at IMG, and it all depends on it's as effective as where that piece of communication fits within the overall marketing objective. So if you put a sign up and choose not to either have it within the broadcast art, arch, uh, or arc, I should say, or actually continue that message of, relevance to the viewing audience back home with a either a TVC or a broadcast alignment, it is only a static, uh, what I would consider a two-dimensional piece of inventory. That being said, you have your LED signage, et cetera, right now. So the team at MKTG and QMS, et cetera, they've really advanced or sort of evolved their, their platform to allow a more digital message. I suppose it's it's where does that sort of where does that piece of creative that message fit in within the overall? Now to answer this question is is probably not dissimilar to saying what is better, Sydney, Melbourne, or Canberra? Canberra or is New York? Yeah, I knew you'd say that. Or it's actually saying you know whether New York how does that compare? Is it better than LA? Now they all have their benefits, their you know their pros and cons. With TV, it allows us to, yes, reach a mass audience, but if done in a way, there's nothing stopping the ability to have signage link in, you know, through the live play and the live action through then to roll out into uh, an integration or extension of the 30-second or 15-second commercial within commercial space. That is something that MKTG and Seven, we have discussed in the past and will continue to do so. So I think it depends on the relevance of the creative as well. So I haven't really given you what is better. Personally, right now, of course, TV, let us give you the opportunity as broadcaster, not just TV, but across screens to, to integrate. But at the same time, I think from a signage perspective, it, it provides a, an ability for the people in Stadia to activate and engage with, but also be, um, come out. One thing I don't like is being distracted, being distracted during live play with too much imagery. Often more is less, and so um, the less that can be done that can allow me to focus when the ball is in motion, the better. 
And I think signage companies in Europe work very closely with broadcasters to ensure there's not just too much graffiti happening when live play is in action. Rick Conti from Make joined us in episode 70 and took us inside what makes great physical activations. Now, activations have come a long way from the single white box marquee outside an event like a stadium. We now see activations taking place across digital TV during an event and sometimes, well, quite often, actually, even separate to the actual running of the event. Where do you think the industry sits on the the spectrum in terms of, at one end, sponsorship assets being activated in isolation or even siloed pieces, and at the other end of the spectrum, fully integrated multi-channel activations? Where does the industry sit at the moment, do you think? I think it's still quite broad in terms of um, where the industry actually sits. I think at one end, there's a number of brands that are doing it really well. And this probably comes down to to budget and capacity and resources and things like that. And then there's probably some brands that are, you know, potentially entering the sponsorship space or probably just, just getting their, their feet wet when it comes to activating and probably not as well versed in, in how to leverage leverage those activations as well. So I think it's quite broad at the moment, but in terms of where I think it should sit, every opportunity to to leverage that partnership through every channel at your disposal, I think is is what best practice should be. I think today with activation and isolation is just it's just not best practice for today's interconnected society. I think, you know, as we know, the data that comes out of research reports each year that um, you know, fans are residing across multiple platforms at multiple times and, and the whole omni channel approach is is really the way forward for brands. Um, you know, we, we see online retailers moving offline and, and vice versa. So I think I think you really do need to be everywhere and I think that's when you're really going to see the best results from your activation is when you can engage with that consumer or the, or the fans across multiple channels at the same time to really, really nail your message across and, and get a result from that activation. I think perception is reality. We had a discussion around this the other day. So, you know, strategic investment into certain channels to really achieve that bigger than you really are kind of perception is, um, is quite important as well. So... In episode 71, James Ward, Head of Events and Consultancy at TLA Worldwide, joined us to discuss best practice around experiential activations. When a brand enters a sponsorship, there are obviously various objectives that they are trying to achieve and return on investment as well. Sometimes it is brand awareness and visual properties like signage and jersey logos are well suited. What objectives do you think experiential activations are best suited to help achieving? Well, I think for me, experiential, as I talked about, is that personal interaction. So it's so the things that can come through that is community engagement, relationship building, and helping build an audience or a database. It can also help with awareness, but like awareness, if you've got your logo on the front of the jersey or you've got your LED signage, that's kind of done, but it's then working on ways that can be, you know, you can engage effectively. A really good example for me, though, is we've had a lot of clients or potential clients that we've been chatting to, and they they use experiential as a data capture moment. Right? They go, oh, we need to, oh, it's great because we get data. But unless you actually have a plan for that data, and a lot of them don't. I've famously sat in a meeting and said, oh, we use it for data capture. And I said, oh, okay, so what did you do? <laughs> what do you do with that data? And I went, oh, I'm not sure, actually. And so it goes into this other pool of data. And I said, oh, I'd be good to know because if you've collected all this data, how effective do people engage with it so then we can devise our plans for this year to ensure that if it was really effective, let's maximise that. Or if you found that, that people didn't, you know, once they gave you, your, you their details and then you sent them something after none of them engaged, then maybe we need to look at it differently. But it's amazing that, you know, it's kind of it's a lot of brands, I think less and less these days as we get a bit more professional, but they stop at the get the data and then not sure what they do with it after. In episode 72, AirAsia's regional brand manager, Ben Rinjar, took us inside AirAsia's eSports sponsorship experiences. AirAsia have been involved in eSports early on. We, we touched on them a little bit earlier on in the show, but AirAsia has been involved in eSports since early on, but not only just with sponsorship, but also in building Malaysia's first eSports hub. 
What did and does AirAsia see as the appeal or opportunity of being involved with esports early? Because esports is clearly now big and it's probably only ever going to get bigger. But what was the attraction, the appeal or the opportunity that you saw early on? And this is going to sound rehearsed, but it's only because I've been asked this question several times. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I mean, as you mentioned, Aries has been involved in esports for a long time now. We have a couple of advocates within the company themselves who are really pushing the rhetoric of, of how important esports is to our early consumer base. Right? Um, so why did we get involved early is a very simple question. I mean, a very simple answer. The gaming industry is where consumer dollars are being spent right now. Uh, so globally, the trend, and when you look at the numbers of of what is being spent within the gaming industry themselves versus some other more traditional industries, I mean, I have the numbers here. Video games generate 137.9 billion a year versus 81 billion, which is for movies, and 19 billion, which is for music. So it literally is where the money is being spent uh, in terms of entertainment, if you will. So it definitely tries, it, from a brand's perspective, it definitely makes sense to just get involved with, with, with that consumer base and, and to understand what they, are, what, what they like and what they don't like because they are spending the money. And to move on from that, it doesn't actually become that surprising because when you look at it, games live in consumer's hands. I mean, everybody has a mobile phone. There are people who are casual gamers versus professional gamers. There are people who used to be able to only play games together. I mean, I remember back in the days of the PS1 and things like that when networks weren't a thing and you weren't able to play against your friends unless they came over. Now you can literally sit in your own home, message one of your one of your buddies across the world, and you could be playing a game together. So the technology that has happened over the last 10, 15 years of bringing people together through the light, through the through the world of gaming has has revolutionized, uh, for the lack of a better word, the way that money is being spent and then how people are engaging with games. So areas is we're, we're moving into a very, very digital space and we ourselves are trying to become a digital company through the revamping of our Erasia.com website, through the revamping of our ticketing platforms. And we want to be known as a digital company that happens to own an airline, if that makes sense, because ultimately a lot of the ways that uh, the travel industry is, uh, is changing is, is people are not, having to go to a sales office anymore. They could literally turn on their phone, book a flight, and be at the airport in an hour and a half. So digitizing your business is, is, is definitely the way to go. And, and gaming itself is, I guess, at the very forefront of that. As a young company, we want to ensure that we, we stay relevant with the youth. Uh, and esports is where our future demographic is, is currently living. So to, even though we were the first, I mean, I... I I don't believe that that really matters. It for us just made a strategic made strategic sense to be involved with that because that is where young young future travelers are. So building a perception of the brand from an early age is important because it helps it helps instill loyalty, and we want to ensure that we remain relevant throughout our target market's entire lifespan. So if we get in there now, for all you know, they they will they will remember us when they are no longer, I guess, young people interested in that specific thing. Our guest in episode 73 was Ben Hartman, Managing Director at Octagon, who was a judge for the first ever Entertainment Lions for Sport. Off air, before I hit the record button, we were talking about the parameters and I was going to ask you that overall in judging the Entertainment Lions for Sport, you had five key parameters to judge each submission, but you tell me that as a a jury, you came up with those parameters yourself? Yeah, it was the first part of the process for us, actually. Um, It's really hard when you're comparing all the different work that comes from the different mediums. How are you going to compare a piece of outdoor to a piece of content that's done to a beautiful, good-crafted film to to a small stunt with a brand that had $20,000 to produce it? So for us as a group, we had to come up with a lens that we're able to to look at what were the parameters that we wanted to be able to do it for. And the first ones really was about, you know, this is can for us, it's the epitome of creativity in the industry. And if we're going to reward something, it's got to have this notion of quality attached to it. And 
that quality, I think, in a lot of other mediums, particularly something like film, is, is referred to as craft, and, and that really talks about the quality or the techniques and how aesthetically pleasing a piece of work is. But that's really different. Craft is really different for a sponsorship because it's not just about beautiful work and it's not just about the techniques that you use. Um, so we had to shape what we thought that would be. And so we came up with, I guess, our own criteria that really meant that the craft of sponsorship was how well a work tapped into the sporting zeitgeist that was happening at the time, how much fan, fan value it added and, and was able to integrate into a fan's experience. Was there a clear role for the brand in doing all of that and, and using sport as a platform to tell that story? And they were really these criteria that we were able to look at because especially at the top end when you're trying to find the difference between a piece of work that you may deem as a silver or a gold lion, you really need to have something to be able to assess it against. In episode 74, Alison Tyson, Senior Manager, Brand and Sponsorship, took us inside Nissan's sponsorship management and execution. And what do you find challenging about all that data? Is it maybe not knowing what you might need? Is it too much data? And Is it making sense of the data? What do you find really challenging about that space? I think what brands need to be so cognizant of is understanding the objective behind the data they're capturing. So, why we're capturing data at an on-site activation, for example, versus why we might capture it as part of our social media campaigns or our digital advertising is so important. Because, I mean, as you say, there's, da- there's data everywhere, right? And and not only understanding why you're capturing it, but what, importantly, what you're going to do with it once you've captured it. So, there's no use in, you know, interacting with someone at one of our activations um, at a sporting match and then, you know, really not touching that data and not doing anything with it until six months later when we might have a cracking retail offer in market and we push it out to that audience. I mean, that's just not creating a genuine connection and not utilising the data in the best possible way. We need to we need to understand the data, ensure we're capturing it in the right way and then ensure we're treating that person in an appropriate way based on our level of engagement too. It's an age-old question and challenge. How do we value our sponsorship assets? However, led by Rob Mills, Global CEO and Director at Gemba and Turnstile, Turnstile Group are tackling this issue head-on with valuations based on actual market rates. And Rob joined us in Episode 75 to take us inside that process. How can a rights holder prove return on investment value to a brand, someone that's sponsoring them, if there isn't really any decent media equivalency measurement available? first point is that media equivalency in itself is not an ROI matrix, and I think this is where the industry's probably evolved down the wrong path the last 20 years. It may provide some perspective on logo impressions, but it's a long way from being an ROI metric. So, and the analogy I give is it'd be like a marketing director claiming that they had a great ROI because they delivered a certain amount of rating points for their 30-second commercial. You know, if, if anything, it's an input, but it's definitely not an output. So I think as an industry, we need to be really clear that media equivalencies were never designed to and are clearly not an ROI um, metrics. Our view would be that ROI metrics really need to be calibrated against the objectives of the sponsorship. So, and, and every brand will have very different reasons why they're investing. You know, it could be that they're looking to drive consumer loyalty, they're looking to drive sales. It could be that it's a staff engagement initiative and they want to, um, you know, motivate and reward their staff. It could be a, a way of motivating and rewarding key trade partners. So that RI equation will vary massively across those outcomes and media frequencies will not address those those types of outcomes. So I think to answer the, the premise of your question is, can a rights holder build an ROI equation for a brand without decent media frequencies? Absolutely. And it's, it's, it's a more holistic set of metrics that will define success in the ROI. And I think, you know, if you also think about it this way, that some of the world's biggest sponsorships are solely or largely composed of intellectual property where there is no media equivalency or no exposure. So so there's clear proof points in the market that media equivalency cannot be the answer for a return on investment uh, the question. In episode 76, Catherine Butterworth, Director of Sponsorships, took us inside MasterCard Australasia's sponsorship program. 
As a brand, you just mentioned about other areas of the business learning from the sponsorship sharing. So as a brand, when you sign off on a new deal or maybe it's a renewal, you're typically not the only one, the sponsorship team who executes all of the assets and campaigns. A lot of the time, there'll be some that go out to digital teams and, and others go to media, etc. So what's your opinion on how involved those other areas of the business and teams need to be in the negotiation of a sponsorship deal, particularly if they're going to be involved in executing elements of it? It's correct that we have uh, a lot of different like parts of the business who utilise or leverage our sponsorship assets. Rather than a level of involvement of particular teams or people, though, it's ensuring we've considered the learning. So because we do work with all these different parts of the business and parts of marketing to activate these properties, as we're doing that, we are sort of keeping track of what's working or what isn't or what questions we're getting or what we're not or what needs we're seeing, what opportunities we're seeing as a result of how something is being programmed. And we keep track of that and we feed that in. So there's always a lead um, on each sponsorship renewal or um, new deal and they, they reach out for those sort of learnings and like opportunities or insights. So we provide that to them. So we're basically collating from our experience with those business units or um, different team members so we can provide that to them as kind of extra context or insight for them to feed into to the deal that they're forming. In the penultimate episode for 2019, episode 77, Sam Goodwin, Managing Director at CSM Sport and Entertainment, joined us to discuss the look and feel of events and how that impacts on sponsorship programs. It feels like a bit of a dumb question, but I do want to get your perspective as the expert in this space. But why is the look of an event so important? People don't realise that the look is there but they would notice if it wasn't. It's crucial to their experience of an event. So uh, some I talk about, you think about Beijing 2008 Olympics, what's your abiding memory? You just think there was lots of red. I remember lots of red and yellow. That, that was the look. London 2012, people go, London 2012, yeah, I remember that. It was, it was pink and blue and green and purple and there was that weird jagged logo. The look is in every photo. It's in the background of every piece of footage. It's on the sports equipment. It's, on, it's, the, it's the badge that tells you when you look at a picture or you turn on the TV, oh, I know what this is. You know, I know what I'm watching. It's, it's the identifier. And it's also, um, so I mean, that, that's the, the general thing, but it's also essential to raising the profile of an event. So when an event looks professional and high quality, more people will believe that it is. And its value in sponsorship or broadcast terms reflects this. You know, people will pay more for a quality product. So it's there for everyone's experience. You know, the viewers at home, fans in the stadium, even the players on the field. And Invictus Games is an example of that, where they primarily are doing the look for the players' experience to get give them the feeling that they're participating in a world-class event. And that, that's not to mention the people behind the scenes, you know, the thousands of people that work on these events who take a huge amount of pride from being part of something. There is a little story here that I sort of, uh, I recall from uh, London 2012 um, that kind of illustrates it. The head of overlay there is a chap called uh, Guy Lodge. He was um, showing a, pol- a politician, a minister, who was vaguely involved around the Eton Dorney Rowing Centre at the time and they'd done a huge amount of work on this place in terms of overlay they'd put in new facilities they dug trenches they'd added new fiber new drainage new grandstands the whole works they'd done all this stuff and this minister had been down to site quite a few times and he was always all oh, right okay is it is it going to be finished on time is it you know so is everything is it yeah okay yeah that sounds great but he never really showed the level of enthusiasm that that sort of guy wanted him to show and then one day they came down and our boys had literally just unpacked the first sort of piece of branding and were putting up a massive piece of blue scrim across the front of a grandstand, you know, massive sort of uh, bit of branding. And the guy suddenly lit up and goes, oh, it's coming along nicely, isn't it? You know, it's really, <laughs> it's really coming together. And, and guy just like, oh, God, I can't believe it. But that, that's what it means to people. That is sort of like, you know, where it comes from. It, it means we're ready. You know, we're, we're getting there. This is, this is put your game face on. There's that expression, you know, you don't throw the world's biggest party in and not get dressed for it, which I think came out of Sydney 2000. And it, it's sort of saying, yeah, let's, let's do this. 
an amazing 2019. And once again, a huge thank you to all of the amazing guests who worked with me and found some time to come on the show and share. Interestingly, the last guest you heard from, Sam Goodwood, Managing Director at CSM Sport and Entertainment, was actually suggested to us by one of our listeners, Jane Robinson, who also works at CSM. So... If you have any areas you want covered or suggestions for great guests, please just let us know and we'll see what we can do. Even if, just like Jane, it is someone in your own organization, please don't be shy and humble in getting in touch and making that suggestion and maybe an introduction. That's a wrap for episode 78 and 2019. If you're listening to this show over the Christmas period, then I trust you and your family have enjoyed some much needed downtime and most importantly, have stayed safe. I really do look forward to having you tune in for some more shows in 2020, but until then, I'd love to hear from you. Maybe you'd even like a shout out because you all know how sad I get when I don't get any shout outs to give out on the show. If you want to connect with me, you can do so on LinkedIn. Just search for Daniel Oyston or drop me an email at daniel at sponserve.net or on Twitter using the handle at Sponserve. And if you want to connect with Core Software's head of international business, Mark Thompson, you can catch him on mark.thompson at coresoftware.com or search for him on LinkedIn as well. Don't forget you can follow us on Facebook, LinkedIn, Twitter and Instagram. Just search for Sponserve. Until next time, I'm Daniel Oyston. Thanks for listening to Inside Sponsorship. Thanks for listening to the show. For more episodes and to subscribe to the show, search for Inside Sponsorship on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever it is you listen to your podcasts. Also, for more free industry-specific resources, including blogs, ebooks, white papers, and our Insights newsletter, head to coresoftware.com. Finally, be sure to follow Core Software on Twitter and LinkedIn.